0: Northridge Campus joins us, and our Cactus Campus, and then our chapel and our venue. Uh, we're going to have a special Father's Day time in, in the Word of God. And, you know, I, we used to always say this on Mother's Day, and we, we still do. We hardly ever say it on Father's Day, but I think it's, it's worth saying, and that is as we celebrate, you know, Father's Day here today, uh, I and we are aware that this is not always a joyous day for some of you fathers. Uh, Some of you didn't have a great father, and so it's hard to celebrate Father's Day. Some of you uh, are struggling with your fatherhood now, and so it might be hard to celebrate Father's Day. And so I want you to know that as much as we are having fun today and joy around Father's Day, we understand that for some, it's hard to get into that, if you will. But, but here's two things you got going for you that I'm gonna help you with uh, today as we look at Jesus' parable. Uh, the first, and you can't deny this one, is that God is your father, amen? God is your father. So whether you didn't have a great father or not, or whether you feel beat up as a father, guess what? God is a good father. He, he presents himself to you as father, and we're gonna talk about that today. That's your ace in the hole. And then the second thing, We're going to talk about today that you need to understand is that he also, because he's your father, wants to help you be a better man or a better woman as we're going to see today, or a better father or a better mother. In other words, his fatherhood for us is the pattern and becomes even the impetus and motivation for us in our lives becoming better people. So, you know, whether you get into all the hype of Father's Day or not, as your pastor, that's not my issue. My issue with you today is that this is a meaningful day because God is our father and he's here to help us become the people he wants us to be. So with that said, Why don't you bow with me and we're gonna dive right in. Father, I love calling you that because Lord, you are the one who is the only perfect good father Uh, in our lives. And Lord, for some of us, that's even hard to see because we have not had great role models or what have you. And so today, Lord, I pray you might blow the barn doors wide open. I pray that you might help us to have a laser beam focus on certain aspects of your fatherhood of us that will now help us become the kind of people that you want us to be. We're not afraid of that, Lord. We're not afraid of the truth. We're not afraid of reality. So enter us into the truth reality of who you are on this day that we set aside to celebrate fatherhood. And I pray this in Jesus' name and we all say together, Amen. So Here's what binds us all together. There's not one of us here today or at Northridge Cactus Chapel and venue that doesn't love a good story. There's not one of us here today that doesn't love a good story. I mean, people tell stories all the time in culture today. You hear stories at work, around the dinner table, on the golf course, at bars, at school, and church, at small group I mean, life is so much about stories, these little ditties about our experience and how we've even learned from them. And the good news is is that Jesus told a lot of stories. In fact, it's primarily how he taught us about God. And his stories, watch this, were never too long, always fascinating, and always to the point. Some of you could learn from Jesus on how to tell stories. I have a friend of mine who tells such long stories, and you have a friend like this too, and about 10 minutes into a story that should have been three minutes, he'll say, and to make a long story short, (laughs) and I'll think to myself, that ship sailed seven minutes ago. See, Jesus never did that. He never said, and to make a long story short, because his stories were always just perfect in length. They were fascinating, always to the point. And so what we're doing for three weeks here in June at our church is we're parking in front of one of Jesus's most well-known stories, what we call the story of the prodigal son, It's a simple story, really. It's about a son who leaves home way too early. He asks for his inheritance too early, like before his father is dead. And then he takes this inheritance and he spends it wastefully and sinfully. He hits rock bottom. He comes home. And then as we saw last week, as we focused on the younger son, the father shows him grace. Grace. It's unexpected. We weren't seeing it coming. Unhindered, life-giving grace teaching us something profound and life-giving about how God responds to you and me when we get all prodigal in our lives. And after exploring the ins and outs of the younger son's journey last week, what we want to do today, not coincidentally on Father's Day, is explore what many theologians argue or who many theologians argue is the central character of this story, and that is the father. And though many veteran Christians are tempted to say right now, well, I know all about the Father, I think we're going to catch you off guard today. We're going to take a look at a few aspects of the Father that many of us need to do a better job of maybe emulating in our lives. And so here's our main point today as we move deeper into our understanding of the Father in this story that we're going to pick up again this week. And here's our main point, and that is that if you know the Father... Then what Jesus is going to tell us is become like the Father. That's what we need to hear this Father's Day. That if you know the Father of all, meaning God the Father, then what Jesus is going to slip under the door of our minds today is to say, why don't you become more like Him? Now, how do we see that in our story? I want you to think about this with me and tell me if this isn't true. When most people read the story of the prodigal son, the one that we're parked in front of for three weeks here, isn't it true that most people think that the whole point of this story is to learn to come home to the father? That's the way most people read this story. So whether you're the younger son who hits hard times and comes home to the father, or as we're going to see next week, whether you're the older son who's lost while he's still at home and needs to come home to the father. We tend to see this story as simply about sons learning to come home to the father, which represents us coming home to God. And that once we come home to the father, we now stay on the farm, work the farm, and and hopefully learn and grow and mature now that we're home. And I would submit to you that this is the way most people read the story of the prodigal son. And in many ways, that's correct. That is obviously what the story is about. But let me ask you. Could it be that Jesus also has an additional, even higher purpose in telling this story, namely that once we come home, once we have come to know the Father, that we then learn to become like the Father ourselves and specifically like him in how we treat and receive prodigals into our lives as well? Could it be that what Jesus is getting at in part in the story is that we learn to grow up and begin to emulate what we have so powerfully experienced in our lives with God now to those around us? You see, I think this is exactly a great part of this story and the reason that I believe that is because the context of Jesus telling us the story. This is really good. is in found in Luke chapter fifteen, verses one and two, where before Jesus even tells the story, Luke tells us the context. And you're going to love the context. The context is that Jesus is hanging around with tax collectors and sinners. You're thinking, what's the big deal? Well, this is the son of God. This is a rabbi. This is a holy man. And it would be like him going to Hollywood today and hanging around Miley Cyrus and all of her friends. And you'd be going, wait a second. Yeah, that doesn't really fit. Like you should be in church. You should be with the religious people. You ought to be hanging around those who, who give a darn about what you're teaching about. But no, he's hanging around tax collectors and sinners. He's hanging around those that don't seem to fit the religious scene. And then in Luke 15, it's the scribes and the Pharisees, the pastors of Jesus's day that start to bicker back and forth saying he's hanging around tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus tells three stories about a lost sheep and about a lost coin and then a lost son, the one that we're in right now. So here's the point. Could it be that in addition to him defending why he's hanging around tax collectors and sinners and that God is here for tax collectors and sinners, that he's also saying to the scribes and Pharisees, maybe you ought to start treating them similarly. Maybe you need to change your attitude to how you interface with people around you and culture because here's what I'm telling you, uh, scribes and Pharisees, you're not like the father you're not like him at all. So let me tell you a story on how you can become more like him. See, I think that's a great part of Jesus's point in this story. If you don't believe me that this is good theology, look at what Jesus would say at another point in his teaching. He says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Interesting. Interesting. He's not saying be merciful because I want you to be merciful or be merciful because God made you to be merciful. No, he's saying be merciful as you imitate your father who himself is merciful. And so there you have it. He's telling us that we need to be like the father in certain areas of our lives. And though obviously this doesn't mean that we're to become divine, like the Father. That would be a silly application. The question then does, does become, well, in what ways are, do we, are we to become like God the Father? I mean, here it's merciful, but in our story, how does Jesus want us to become like the Father? What specific traits, what specific attitudes are we to mimic in God the Father as we love and minister to those around us, whether it be our kids, our grandkids, our friends, our co-workers, our fellow church members, our spouses? And by the way, this is now true for men and women because God is all of your Father. So as we now imitate him, what does it look like to do that? Three things this amazing story of Jesus teaches us. Three ways that we can become like the Father in loving those around us, even welcoming prodigals into our lives. And the first thing is to become welcoming to them, to become welcoming to them. I want you to look at how the Father in Jesus' story responds to the younger son in verse 20 of Luke 15, when the younger son first comes home. This is rich. Look at what Jesus says. He says, and he, the younger son, got up. Remember, he was in a distant country living in pig slop. So he got up and came home to his father. Now watch this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. Whoa. Now now we're going to park in front of this right now and show some of the uniqueness of the father's response here. And I put a lot of it in yellow for you there so that you won't miss it. Notice first that it says that while this younger son was a far way off, his father saw him. Let's stop right there. But what hits me about that, gang, is that the father, for this to happen, the father must have been looking, right? Right? The father must have been sitting on his front porch or looking out his front window, and this probably would have been a desert climate like we live in, so you can see a long way off. And on the horizon, as he was looking and longing and waiting, he starts to see that real small, because it would be very far in the distant sun, coming toward him. And that's the first thing you need to see. And the reason that's important is because part of being welcoming is being looking, and God is always looking for prodigals coming home and so should we as we're gonna see but we're not done then notice it says that this father felt compassion Now this you gotta park in front of as well, because I want you to think of all the things a father might do or feel at a son who's coming home after taking a third of the inheritance, squandering it, hitting rock bottom and now having no choice but to come home. Interestingly, the father did not initially feel anger. He wasn't gonna say, you stupid son. He didn't feel fear. He didn't feel like, oh my gosh, you could've killed yourself. He didn't feel that. He didn't even feel parental correction. I told you this was going to happen. No, it's fascinating. Out of all the things that the father could have felt that we men tend to feel in light of our children messing up, this father initially felt compassion. And boy, is that important. Boy, is that rich. Because that's going to be key to this idea of welcoming. And sure enough, it says lastly here that the father ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. Now, Again, pause there, because here's what you need to understand. Now let's look at Rembrandt's painting here that's on your bulletin cover as well. In Rembrandt's painting, recreating this scene of the prodigal son, he nailed who this father most likely was. In other words, if you look at the father here, you have an older, dignified, refined Jewish landowner that's being portrayed as a father. And that was almost surely who this man was. Because in order to have wealth back then, you had to be a a landowner. To have an inheritance, you had to be a landowner. So this guy almost likely was a very wealthy landowner, very dressed to the nines, dignified elderly man. And here's what you need to know. He starts running to this son like Julie Andrews in the sound of music in the opening scene of that. Get that picture in your head. I mean, it's almost silly. It's almost like a schoolgirl who has a crush. I mean, that's what this father does. He abandons all diplomacy, he abandons all of his dignity, and just starts running through the open desert to his son. And then when he gets to his son, his son is still a mess, as we noticed last week. And the son bows and says, Just make me a servant, I deserve no more. But no. He places his hands upon him and embraces him and kisses him. Guys, what you need to see is that this is the ultimate welcome. And it stems from a heart of grace and compassion. And it's key to who this father is. You know, I mentioned last week that uh, part of this series is, is based at least sparked by a book that was written more than 20 years ago uh, by Henry Nouwen, actually about 25 years ago, Henry Nouwen, who has since died but was a a theologian about 25 years ago that wrote some pretty meaningful stuff and he wrote a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And and in this book, he basically chronicles his, his, uh, how much he loved or was enamored with Rembrandt's painting here and how he did a deep dive into Luke 15 and at one point in his book, he talks about what really blew him away about the father in this picture. And I mentioned this last week. He focuses on the hands of the father that embraced the son here. So let's get a close up. I can't see the screen, but let's get a close up right now of those hands. And as you're looking at the hands, let me read for you what Nowen says hit him about these hands of the father. He says it's all about the hands. The two are quite different. The father's left hand touching the son's shoulder is strong and muscular. The fingers are spread out and cover a large part of the prodigal son's shoulder and back. I can see a certain pressure, especially in the thumb. That hand seems not only to touch with its strength, but also to hold. Even though there is a gentleness in the way the father's left hand touches his son, it is not without a firm grip. He goes on to say, but how different is the father's right hand? This hand does not hold or grasp. It is refined. It is soft. It is very tender. The fingers are close to each other, and they have an elegant quality. It lies gently upon the son's shoulder. It wants to caress, to stroke, to offer consolation and comfort. It's a very different hand. And sure enough, when you look close, no one is right. Uh, Rembrandt painted two very different hands on the father here, and that was by design. Because he's trying to show on a spiritual level what God's hands are like when he receives prodigals back home. For our purposes today, maybe we'll call them welcoming hands full of strength and also warmth at the same time. They're the kind of hands that are hands of protection, and hands of comfort at the same time. Or for those of you theologically minded, how about this? They are hands of truth and hands of grace at the same time. Those are the hands of the father that welcome the prodigal home. Hands that grip, but hands that also soothe at the same time. Those are the spiritual hands that can best welcome a prodigal coming home. And so before we move on to the second thing that we need to notice about the father and Jesus's story here, let's not let this escape you and and me in our application. And let me ask you, what do your spiritual hands look like? Forget about your physical hands, but realizing that each of us have spiritual hands that we use to interact with those around us. What do your hands look like and do when it comes to imitating your father? Are your hands beckoning those around you to come closer, especially those that might be in a prodigal mode? And when they come closer, are they embracing them with love and truth? Or, like so many in this world, watch this, are your hands pushing people away? Or maybe even worse, have they formed a fist ready to hit somebody that comes close to you, which would be the way of the world. What do your hands look like and what do they do? I'm telling you, a lot hangs on how we use our spiritual hands when it comes to imitating the Father in Jesus' story here. A lot of our kids and grandkids, our friends, our coworkers, our spouses, I'm telling you, their future depends on what kind of hands we have. You know, I wrote about this in my my book last year toward the end of the book, so if you didn't make it through the book, this will be a new story for you, but I I, I had an experience early on in my ministry about the power of spiritual hands, and it actually resided in two different churches, a church that I interned at right out of seminary, and then my first church that I served at in Detroit, Michigan. And they represented two very different kinds of hands, one that was very welcoming and healing, and one that quite frankly was not. The ones that weren't were the church that I interned with right out of seminary. And they didn't mean to be this way. It was just a large, rather corporate functioning church, and they were on the move and very aggressive and all that. And and I and I landed a job as an intern there. And just suffice it to say, because this one was on me, I was very green. I was very bruised in my life, not having had a great relationship with my father. I was very fearful and timid. But at the same time, I was also very passionate. I was called to ministry. I was ready to be a minister. But this church was just way too much for me. It was hard for me to perform at any really high level with the fears that I had. And and quite frankly, the help that I didn't feel I got at this church And so it was a rough year for me as I was in this church, and at the end of it, I had my evaluation on how I was going to do in ministry. And have any of you ever been given a backhanded compliment in your life? A backhanded compliment is a compliment like this. Hey, for a fat guy, you don't sweat very much. That's a a backhanded compliment, right? So you're saying something negative, but you're trying to make it positive. And that's what my my interview or my, my exit interview at this church was like. My boss called me into his office and, you know, there I am, I mean, young and, and, and very timid and all that. And he, he essentially says, you know, it was kind of a rough year for you and you really didn't, you know, meet our expectations and all of that. This is a church telling me that. And, and, and then they said, he said, but maybe this will help. And I thought, no, I doubt it. But he says, maybe this will help. And he, he said, you know, you being at this church for this year was kind of like being in the major leagues, and you batted about 150. Now pause there. For those of you who don't know baseball, that's not a good batting average, okay? And I knew that. He said, maybe even batting like 150. He said, but you know, next year, when you go to a much smaller church and a much different church, it'll be kind of like going to the minor leagues and I think you're gonna bat better. And then he sent me out of his office. I, true story, I say this in my book. That was one of the very t- only times in my ministry that I felt like maybe I'm not called to the ministry. I went home to Kim and said, I just don't know if this is for me. Maybe God is saying don't go into church work. True story, about a month later, I had an interview with a church in Detroit. The pastor flew to Chicago where I was to interview me, and I was in such bad shape, you should never do this in an interview, we're at Denny's, I was in such bad shape that I started bawling in the midst of the interview. I really did. He was asking me questions about my job and my dad and all these things, and I just lost it. I treated it like a therapy session. I just started to cry. And Kim's looking at me going, no, 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 you know, this is not good. And we get done with the interview, and she's going, well, maybe another church will give you an interview. And and about a week later, I get a call from this pastor in Detroit. And he says, I'd like you to come to Detroit. I said, you do know this was the guy at Denny's, right? I mean, this was not like, because I know who you are. And we came to Detroit and, and to make a long story short, (laughs) yeah, some of you are going, I get that. To make a long story short, uh, he became for the next nine years, the healing hands that I needed. He became a pastor who saw through my timidity, who saw through my crud, who saw through my father wounds, saw the calling, saw the passion, saw my love for Jesus and said, I think we can make something of this. And I could tell you story after story about his hands, spiritually speaking, because they were tender hands. He gave me a chance, but at times they were very tough hands. He spoke truth to me all the time and it became a healing place for my ministry without which I could never be your pastor. So I ask you once again, what kind of hands do you have? I've received both uh, kinds of hands over my lifetime and it's these welcoming hands that stand the best chance of healing. Now, we're not done yet. There's a second aspect to becoming like the Father, also contained in this powerful story of Jesus's, and it's a great challenge to an intense guy like me, and it's celebrating, celebrating. This is powerful. I want you to look at verses 22 to 24 of Luke 15, and notice with me what the Father does next in this story of Jesus's as he welcomes the Son home. It says, but the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and be merry. For the son of mine was dead and he's come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to be merry. Now, obviously you can't miss the tone of celebration and joy here, but let's notice some of the minutiae that might help us in our own lives today, first notice that word that 's easy to gloss over the word quickly, in other words, as we already noticed, this pastor is not the this pastor this father is not based on fear or anger, or I told you so. He's based on compassion, and he wants to stay in that moment, so he says, hey, without any delay, quickly, let's move on to what we need to do next. And then he says, bring out the robe, put on the ring, and give him the sandals. And without going into all the Jewish historical detail there, because it's rich, just suffice it to say, this is the robe of honor for a distinguished person. It's the ring of inheritance, saying you're still a part of the family, and it's the footwear of prestige, only reserved for family members. You're still a son. And then he says, as he redresses this kid, get the fattened calf. And again, this is rich in Jewish history. The Jews would save one calf every year that they would fatten up to be used for the greatest celebration of that year. And this is the father's way of noting that. And then the coup d'etat to all of this is that twice-repeated phrase that tells us about the celebration, let's be merry. It's all about joy. And so don't miss, gang, what's really going on here, because this is important. The father chose to see this event through the lens of joy that resulted in celebration rather than all the other ways he could have seen it, even all the other obvious and true ways. And you're saying, like what? Well, again, let's be realist right now. Think of all the ways a father could see a returning son like this coming back into his life because there was a lot of sin and a lot of unknown still in the mix. I mean, for instance, What was this son's motivation for coming home? Any of you ever thought about that? He came home because he had nothing left. He came home because he hit rock bottom. Like some of you, when you get caught in your sin, you came clean because you got caught. And this guy came home because he had nowhere else to go. But as we're going to see, the father doesn't focus on that motivation. Another issue here is would this son stay repentant? You ever had somebody say they're going to give up a sin only not to, yes or no? Yeah. And it's been what? A few hours that this son has been home. The father could have said, hey, glad you're home. Let's wait and see. But he doesn't. Uh, Interesting as well, uh, what role would this son now have that he's home? Would things go back to normal like nothing happened? See, these are all very real issues motivation, proven repentance, the consequences, and the broken trust. But what's fascinating is that the father, and this is important for you and me, chooses joy and celebration in this moment instead of all these other things that he could have focused on. He chose to celebrate heaven's everyday victories, big and small, watch this, in the midst of all the other sin and crud going on, and even the unknowns. And what a challenge that is to you and me. Because you see, we have prodigals, we have people coming into our lives, tell me this isn't true, that are just as much a mixed bag as this younger son, right? Come on. I saw a bumper sticker years ago. Most people don't get it, you gotta think about it. But the bumper sticker said, po' buddies, Nerf Okay, Po buddy's nerfied. Look it up later. You'll get it when you see it visually. They mixed up the P and the N. So it should be nobody's. I won't use this in the next service. It should be nobody's perfect, but it's po Buddy's perfect. The point is, is that none of us completely have our act together. Can you own that today? All of us at the end of the day are a mixed bag. You might be better than those around you. You might have worked hard on some of your sanctification, good for you, but don't ever forget where you came from. Don't ever forget what you are made of still. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said, there's no such thing as an absolutely pure motivation. And he's right, all of you, me included, we're a mixed bag on our best day. And as a result of that, we should have celebration and joy when there's even a small victory in the loved ones around us, and we should be the first ones, like this Father, celebrating those victories. Because you have no idea, again, how incredibly, incredibly healing it just might be. I wanna show you a picture, I didn't do this last night, let's bring up the picture here. This is a picture of a group of of, uh, special need adults that were at the second church that I served once I became a senior pastor back in 1999 uh, through the year 2002. And uh, this is a fascinating group of adults here. This is uh, Mike here in the middle. He's severely dyslexic. And this is Alvin, uh, had a very, very low IQ. And this is Anne, again, from abuse and other things. She just was not all there. Uh, This is Jamie, again, like my name, and and again, just struggling as an adult. And Neil, do you remember this? Neil, get off your phone. Neil, do you remember uh, this guy's name here on the far left? I think it's Matthew. Anyway, I think that was Matthew. Look at him. He's on his phone. I know you say you're taking notes. You're not. You're checking sports scores. We know that. So, <laughs> so this is that special needs class. And Neil was with me as our youth pastor when I was pastoring this church. Um, and, uh, and this is Kelly. Bless Kelly. And, and here's the sto- backstory behind this, this Sunday school class. I'll get to the, some of their players in a minute. Uh, when these kids were all in the youth group growing up in this church, they were picked on mercilessly. I mean, they were not accepted because they were special needs kids uh, in this church and in the youth group there. They were really almost bullied. And then when they became adults, they became an annoyance to the other adults in this church. Uh, They couldn't worship very well, at least by the Baptist standards, and so they couldn't clap on tune, and they couldn't stamp their foot on tune, and, and they were loud, and sometimes some things would set them off because there was some autism going on there, and they were distracting in worship. And then my favorite story about these, these adults was that they, they loved the elevator in this church. It was an older church with seniors and they loved to play on the elevator and they'd ride it up and down and treat it like a roller coaster and let's just say it was kind of distracting. And the deacons didn't know what to do with this group of people. Their, their whole mindset was how do we rein them in? <laughs> I'm gonna get emotional at this until Al and Ruth came along. Al and Ruth were seniors in this church. And Al and Ruth saw this differently. They said, These adults, they called them their kids, they need to be celebrated. They don't need to be held back. They need to be drawn together into a Sunday school class. They need to be loved on, welcomed, and celebrated for the amazing creations of God that they are. And so Al and Ruth developed the Sunday school class, they called themselves the Wings based on Isaiah 40 verse 31 where it says that those who wait on the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles. And they became known as the Wings Sunday school class. And they started to help them learn how to worship at least more appropriately by Baptist standards. They helped them learn how to interface with the other adults. Man, they just shepherded them like crazy. And my favorite thing that they did is that they, they, they went to the deacons and said, you know, these kids really do love the elevator. So instead of fighting them, why don't we make them in charge of the elevator? And why don't we tr- teach them how to help the seniors get on and then they can push the buttons, ride them up and help them to get off. And, and they did that. And each week it was one of their turns to run the elevator. And these kids were, oh my gosh, they couldn't wait to have their turn with the elevator. I, I, I saw literally magic happen in a spiritual way in the lives of these special needs adults. But don't miss it, it came because Al and Ruth and their assistant there, they they, they saw something special in these kids and they wanted to celebrate what God was doing. See, here's my point, we're gonna move on. I, I don't know who you have in your life around you, but I know this, you have people in your life that God wants you to celebrate and you think it's maybe a small thing, it's not when we celebrate heaven's victories, little and small, it does something to the human spirit. It lets them know that they're loved, that they're unique, and lets them know that the Father, the Father, is real. And it becomes a healing that they might need just to get their life together a bit more. So we welcome them, we celebrate them, and then this is the greatest challenge, I think, to evangelical Christians today. And that is that the final thing we learn from the story about becoming like the father is that we need to become impartial. We need to become impartial. In other words, this is a welcoming and a celebration, watch this, that is no respecter of persons. It is open and available to everybody that God brings your way. And again, what a great challenge this is to many of us, especially in the town that we live in. First, let's cement that this is what Jesus is saying. reason we know that this is part of the narrative of the story here, and we're going to explore this more next week, and now watch this, is that the father in our story responds with the same welcome and celebration to the younger son, also then to the older son. We're going to see this more next week. The older son is going to be lost while still at home. The older son is going to cop an attitude and get angry and and, and deal with his self-righteousness even though he never rebelled. And yet the father is going to go and treat the older son with the same welcome, with the same joy and celebration as he does the younger. Let me just give you a taste of this that we'll flesh out more next week. It says, but he the older son, became angry and was not willing to go into the party. In other words, he was just so mad that this father was not being more tough on the younger son. And then it says, and his father, watch this, came out. Pause right there. Remember this dignified father who ran to the younger son? Isn't it interesting? When the older son cops an attitude, he runs out to the older son and he begins entreating him. We'll see more what this means next week. But he he just starts to basically say to this older son, man, I love you. In fact, everything I have is yours. You still got the bulk of the inheritance. And I'm so glad you stayed on the farm and I'm so glad you're my son. But guess what? The younger son is now home and needs celebration and welcoming, the same celebration and welcoming that I offer you. So again, what we need to see in this story is that there's no favorites. There's compassion, mercy, and grace to each of the son's, to all of the kids. And again, going back to that analogy or not analogy, the context that I gave you earlier, this is exactly what Jesus is saying to those, to those Pharisees and scribes who were all judgmental at Jesus and hanging around the tax collectors and sinners. In a sense, he's saying, guess what? I love these tax collectors and sinners just as I do, much as I do, you religious folk. And you see, that's a message for you and I, amen? Sometimes we forget that God loves Howard Stern and Mick Jagger. The younger guys tell me I got to start picking on somebody else, but they're my favorites. He loves Howard Stern and Mick Jagger just as much as he does you. And we forget that. And I'm not saying those guys are poster child for what Christianity looks like. They aren't. They're not even in the ring. But we need to remember that God loves them. That God longs and waits for all, as the Bible says, to come to repentance and come home to him. And his offer of grace is universal. And so there's no partiality there in his offer of salvation. And so how do we become like the Father? We need to begin and treat those around us as God does. Welcoming, celebrating, and doing it in an impartial manner. So Let's wrap this up. I'm going to do so with a word, a confession, and then I want to read you one final thing. Here's the word, and this is important for you to know. God, our heavenly father, is always going to wait and welcome and celebrate lost ones coming home. Whether you think this is too much grace, whether you like this or not, (laughs) hate to rain on your parade, God doesn't care This is the way he functions. This is a father's heart. He is going to welcome. He's going to celebrate. He's going to be impartial. It's who he is. And so the only question becomes for you and me on this Father's Day, and gals, this is for us too, will we join God in this or not? Will we mimic the father? If you know the father, you want to be like the father, will we mimic him in who he is? And here's the confession, (laughs) man, is this a big challenge to me. I think some of you know me well enough. I've been your pastor for almost 12 years. And my wife, if she was here right now, she's probably watching online. She's in Michigan. But if Kim was here right now, she'd be going, "Uh, welcoming? Hmm. Celebrating? Hmm. You know, impartial? Hmm. Like one finger pointing at the congregation, three pointing back at you. Because I fight for every welcoming spirit, every joy of every day, and to be impartial in a crazy town like this. I fight for that every day. This is not an easy road for any of us. And one of the reasons that I have to fight so hard for it, and this is part of my confession, but you guys I think know this about me. I've confessed it before, is that I I just, I tend to struggle with cynicism. I, I grew up in a very, very cynical home. I'm not blaming dad. It's all on me now, but I I, I mean, one of my favorite love languages some days is cynicism. I mean, I'm just, I'm just a, a very cynical person. And, and a lot of people find it kind of funny and endearing and all that. But at the end of the day, I think we all know it's not. It's a rather ugly trait. It hardly ever helps people. And it's really not very grace-filled. Years ago, when I first uh, bought this Nowen book, he, he, he comes at it like with daggers, this idea of cynicism and, it, and its antonym, Joy. I want you to listen to what he writes because this is such a challenge to me, but this is also very life-giving. He says, for me, the amazing experience that I have is the radical difference every day between cynicism and joy. He says, cynics seek darkness wherever they go. They point always to approaching dangers, impure motives, and hidden schemes. They call trust naive, care romantic, and forgiveness sentimental. They sneer at enthusiasm ridicule spiritual spiritual fervor, and they despise charismatic behavior. They consider themselves realists who see reality for what it truly is and who are not deceived by escapist emotions. He says, but in belittling God's joy, their darkness only calls forth more darkness. He says, people who have come to know the joy of God do not deny the darkness, but they choose not to live in it. They claim that the light that shines in the darkness can be trusted more than the darkness itself and that a little bit of light can dispel a lot of darkness. They point each other to flashes of light here and there and remind each other that they reveal the hidden but very real presence of God. They discover that there are people in this world who heal each other's wounds, forgive each other's offenses, share their possessions, foster the spirit of community, celebrate the gifts they have received, and thus live in constant anticipation of the full manifestation of God's glory. He says, every moment of each day, I have a chance to choose between cynicism and joy. And when I read words like that, I'm just filled with shame that I would ever celebrate my cynicism. Because at the end of the day, as your pastor, I wanna be more like the Father, how about you? I wanna have welcoming hands, not hands that push away. I wanna have a celebrating spirit that when you or anybody in my life comes to me, even with a small victory from heaven, I'm the first to say, let's just applaud. And I wanna be impartial, not falling into this city's trap of looking at people through socioeconomic eyes, or where you live, or what you do, or what you've been through. No, it doesn't matter. We are all creations of Almighty God. and We are all valuable in His sight. And He wants us all to come home. And that's the kind of impartial spirit I think it's going to take. Happy Father's Day. If you know the Father, become more like the Father, welcoming, celebrating, and impartial. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that the story of Jesus that is just so perfect because it comes from the perfect son of God contains truth that we need for our lives today. And Lord, what a great challenge it is to me to uh, live a life that's consistently welcoming and celebrating and impartial in the midst of all the crud going on around us. But Lord, we know that kind of grace is the kind of grace that can break through and bring the healing that so many people desperately need. God, I pray this church would be the source of that kind of healing. These people would be the source of that kind of healing and use us. We'll give all glory to you because all we are doing is imitating the Father. All we're doing is imitating you who has shown us and given us this kind of grace. Soften our hearts, focus our minds, maybe roll up our sleeves and get to work with the prodigals around us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.